Welcome, uh, church, and our Advent series. We started last week. We started an Advent series where we uh, anticipate. Advent really means the coming of, looking forward to the coming of, and we're taking the last week and the next few weeks into Christmas is this looking at the major themes and major topics of Christmas. And, and this is such an important thing for us to do uh, in our year because we become so familiar with Christmas, don't we? At, it's just become so, we've become so used to it and going through the rhythms that the wonderful, deep, and rich themes of the realities of what is happening in Christmas in God in the flesh coming, the King Jesus arriving, and his proclamation of his arrival on earth, and what that means for us and the implications for that is so deep. And we want to be reminding ourselves, and we tend to slip into maybe a bit of familiarity, and we, and we lose that. So what... If I asked you this morning then is, what are the major themes or topics of Christmas? If you were to go and ask somebody on the street or a family member or a friend, and, and, and you say, like, how would you describe Christmas? How, how do you see Christmas? Or what do people say about Christmas in a word or a phrase or, or, or a statement? I, I would say one of the most common ones is what? Peace on earth. Goodwill to all men. Uh, around the world, wherever you go, there seems to be a commonality. If, if regardless of your religious persuasion or thought, everyone generally would say or would have heard that wonderful statement. It's Christmas is about it's peace on earth. It's it's goodwill to all men. And when we look into the scriptures, the angels themselves declare this wonderful truth. They declare glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests. And this, I think, is probably one of the most well-known or most famous passages, most famous phrases or verse or most famous word of Christmas. It's peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill to all men. So that's what we're going to have a look at today. And if you want to open uh, your Bible or a device, we are in Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to read a few verses for us from verse 8 through to verse 14. And this is the announcement and the proclamation of the arrival of Jesus. And there were shepherds, starting in verse 8, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. I think from reading that, clearly from the perspective of the angels, from their view from heaven, Christmas is about glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. That is their decoration, that is their statement, that Jesus comes to bring peace. Jesus is born with the purpose to bring peace on earth. And as we said, that's probably the universally accepted refrain or phrase when it comes to Christmas. It's peace on earth. But what do you understand by peace. What, what is your understanding in this context or your understanding of what peace is? And I think we probably all have different 
understandings of what peace is, and that could result in us not grasping fully the wonderful good news of Christmas. And when it comes to understanding what is this peace, you could put peace into a number of different buckets. I think one of the most popular buckets of understanding of peace would be the absence of conflict. That, the, that, that in the, if you look at the world, like, there is this, we have peace when, when people aren't at war, when no one is fighting, there's no conflict, be it geographical locations, philosophies or ideologies or political parties or countries, there's, there's no war, there's no conflict. Relationally, everybody and everything is getting on. We understand peace in one sense by this absence of conflict. Uh, or you might understand peace as this inner, inner peace, an inner placidity, this centeredness, this sense of calm that one has that is almost transcendent or supersedes the realities of a crazy world that's going on around them, that, that you have this tranquility, this everything's okay, an inner peace. And I think maybe as a parent, I've come to um, think peace is the last version of my understanding is, is uh, let's have some peace and quiet. Like, just leave me alone. Peace is just leave me alone, right? Like, essentially, for many of us, peace is just to be left alone. Like, don't bother me. Don't interrupt into my situation all my life. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. I just want some peace and quiet. I want to do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. Peace is just leave me alone. But if we reflect on that, if this is our understanding of what peace is, if this is true, then we have to look at this passage again and come to the conclusion that what the angels declared isn't true. It can't be. Why do I say that? We'll just reflect for a second around the world. The world is in chaos. The world is in conflict. There's no peace. There's war all over the place all the time. You, no one lives with the tranquility of inner peace. There's conflict in your life. There are things that interject into your inner being and, 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 and oppress you or affect you. There is no such thing as full and complete inner peace. You experienced this probably this morning already. And there's nowhere that you can go where you're left alone to do whatever you want to do. You're always being subjected to something. So that's our understanding of peace then the angels must have got it wrong. And I want to help us, take us on a journey this morning of to, to get to the bottom of the wonderful truth of what peace on earth, goodwill to all men is. And one of the ways I want to do that for us firstly is that when you want clarity on something, often one of the ways you can go about getting clear on something is to do it negatively. Like, what is it not? When you know what it isn't, you can begin to know what it, it is. So I want to start there and, and pick up on these themes again, that it's not the absence of conflict. When the angels declare peace, they're not speaking about fully and primarily the absence of conflict or this world peace. Anyone just has to reflect on the 20th century, and we all know this famous statement that it's probably been the bloodiest, worst, conflict-filled century that we've ever had in the history of humanity. I mean, in the story in Luke, what happens at the very first Christmas? Straight after Jesus is born, what happens? There's bloodshed. King Herod, in his own insecurity, worried about this proclamation of a new king that's coming, goes out and kills every baby boy. There's no peace. There's war. There's bloodshed. There's conflict. And if the angels meant that Jesus' birth was to come and eradicate war and create this, this utopian ideal of world peace with no conflict in it, 
then we could comfortably say that the message of Jesus and Christianity has failed. True? Because that's not the reality that we live in. See, Jesus was clearly not born, therefore, to do that. Look at his own words in in Luke, the same author, Luke chapter 21, verse 9 to 10. This is what Jesus himself says when his disciples ask him, like, what's going to happen towards the end before you return? And he says, when you hear of war, this is Luke chapter 21, verse 9, when you hear of war and revolutions, see to it that you're not surprised or frightened. These things must happen, and nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom will rise up against kingdom. Those are the words of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, saying, if you're expecting some utopian world peace of no conflict and no bloodshed and no oppression and nothing in this world, he says, you've misunderstood. I did not come to bring this type of peace. Now, you're probably thinking, but hang on a second. What about the the Christian being blessed are the peacemakers? And the Bible does say, look, Christians are blessed in their peacemaking. The work of the Christian is to make peace. That's true. But that's always only partial. It's always only relative. It's never fully complete if you look at the world around you. And according to what Jesus says, that he doesn't primarily come for that. When he returns one day and he makes all things new, there will be this ultimate, wonderful new creation at peace with everything. But what he's speaking about here, he says it's on earth, it's peace on earth. What is it that you can have now on earth, fully, completely peace? And clearly it cannot be this political world peace without conflict. What it else it can't be, what they're claiming is that internal placidity, um, that nothing in the world will ever affect you, that you're able to live um, with absolute peace. And there's a lot of uh, philosophies and ways of living that strive to achieve this sort of nirvana of peace and inner sense of stability, which aren't bad things. Uh, mindfulness is a, is a massively increasing uh, philosophy of how do you deal with the stress in the world today. But Jesus wasn't born fully and right now on earth to give you that full peace. Look what he says again in Luke chapter 12. These are the same author in the same book. Chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, they will be divided. Father against son, mother against daughter. That is a great Christmas passage. Peace on earth. I've come to bring fire. So clearly Jesus isn't saying, what he is saying in Luke chapter 12 is, when when, when you come into a relationship with me, when I enter into your life, what he's saying is there will be disturbance. There will be inner conflict. When Jesus comes into your life and he calls you to be radically different, to live radically different to the way the world is structured, it's going to create massive disturbance and conflict in your life. He says here, people that you used to know, people that you get on with, father against son. Mother against daughter, you're going to come into conflict. What do they say at the Christmas dinner table? What shouldn't you speak on? Politics and religion. We know it. It's, it's intuitively there that, that when Jesus comes into your life, there is conflict. You're going to be asked to say and do things that are going to bring you into contrary positions and opposition to people that you might be in relationship. So he's not primarily born to bring you this inner equilibrium. Because we live in a world that's broken, and, and he's not promising fully and completely now 
a peace that completely transcends all these things that, that never affect you, that your life never has conflict, that your life never has some inner turmoil. He's not promising that. He doesn't get born for that peace. Again, the Bible does say, if you're wondering, that there is a peace that transcends all understanding, that guards your heart and mind. And that's, that's the gift and the joy of, of the believer, of the follower of Christ, that you might know this peace. And that there is a sense of, as we sang, a peace like a river. You can have that. But again, right now on earth, it's relative and it's partial. And it's not complete. Because you will always live in a world that is stressed. A world that has conflict. And a world that's going to bring all these things into your life. So the angels weren't declaring primarily this world political peace without conflict or this wonderful utopian ideal that you can live unaffected by the realities of life around you. Now that we've started positively, what then is this peace? What is this peace that the angels declare? Um, what is this good news? Because it clearly is good news. And there's praising and there's singing and there's joy to the world at this peace. And I think part of our problem in grappling with this this morning is that we start the story in the wrong place. We always start Christmas, like I did, in Luke chapter 2. And we lose the context. That's basically the middle of the story. And if you're reading a book or watching a movie or a TV series, if you break into the story in the middle, there's going to be things happening Characters doing things, things are said that make no sense to you, or the power and the effect of what they're there in the story for is lost on you because you have no context. You don't know why they're there. You don't know why they're doing what they're doing. It's because you started the story of Christmas in the wrong place. And if we want to grapple with how wonderful and beautiful this piece is, we have to go to the beginning. And that takes us back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. And if we want to know glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, it starts at the lowest of points. It starts at the beginning in the book of Genesis. So when you look at the statement, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill on whom God has favor to all men, there's an implicit assumption in that statement. There's something implicit. There's something assumed in that statement. It's not in a vacuum. See, there's an assumption that there is no glory given to God, right? Because they come and declare, now it is glory to God in the highest. So at some point, the glory of God, the, the presence of God, the position of God in the highest has been removed. And they've come to make this declaration, now there's glory to God. There's an implicit assumption in the statement that at some point, there, something has happened that there is no peace, that there is no goodwill that there is no favor between God and man. Hence, they come and declare what? Peace on earth. They wouldn't be coming to declare that if there wasn't any. They wouldn't be coming to declare glory to God if there wasn't any. So we need to go back and look that something else has happened in this story prior to this. Something has happened that has necessitated this act of God to come in the flesh, to be born a man and live amongst his creation. Something has happened. And in Genesis, what we find is, at the beginning of the Bible, we find a world at peace. We find a world 
that's in perfect harmony. There's a wholeness. There's a completeness to the world. There's a prosperity. There's a welfare. There's a tranquility in creation that exists. It's this beautiful picture of what peace with God looks like. The Hebrew word for this peace is the word shalom, and it's a deep and it's a rich word that you could spend hours trying to unpack. But a part of the essence of the, the Hebrew understanding of peace that we see in creation is this, is that it's, the, it's this wholeness that exists in the coming together of all the disparate parts brought together in the right way, in the right place to prosper when they function in the way they're meant to function. There is this peace when all the pieces of creation have been brought together in the rightful place, connected to the rightful thing, so that it can prosper in the way that they were designed to function. Shalom. And the key here, what we see in Genesis, is all of those things in creation in this moment of peace is God at the center. God is holding everything together. The creator is at the center of his creation, holding all the composite parts of his creation perfectly together. And out of that flows this world of shalom, of peace, of perfect relationship, of function and prosperity, because everything is perfectly related to God who's at the center. Glory to God in the highest. God is at the center. And this is most perfectly seen in the, in the picture they give us in God's relationship with humanity. We see this picture of Adam and Eve. There is shalom in their relationship. Uh, that's why it, 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 make, it stresses this in, in Genesis, this weird thing. It says they, they were naked and they walked with God in the cool of the night or cool of the day. There's shalom there. There's, there's a perfect peace. They, they, they were exposed to God fully and completely in perfect relationship. The, the nakedness, the just brought together, this intimacy, and it's resulting in a peace and a prosperity of humanity and the world. And all of this is flowing out, as I said, because of the right ordering and the right functioning and the right centering of the relationship with God. Another way of saying this is glory. What I've just described is shalom. Another way of saying this is glory. Can you join the dots? like Praveen Gordon for a second. Join the dots. Glory to God in the highest. And in the Garden of Eden, another way of saying the shalom and the peace is glory. That is, the, there's the presence of God. The glory of God is made most manifestly known. His beauty and his transcendence of who God is is truly revealed fully and completely in his creation, in his relationship to everything. And he's at the center, the life-giving source, that life is found in God, and his life is flowing out relationally into everything. The glory of God is at the center, at its highest place. But what happens? What happens next? You know the story, we're familiar with it. The glory of God is then relegated. The glory of God is then replaced and removed. It's no longer in a highest place. The glory of God is no longer in the center. What do Adam and Eve do? They replace the glory of God with their own glory. They remove God from the center of their lives and, the, and creation, and they put themselves in the center. As, as it is with all humanity, we want to be at the center. We want to be our own God. We want to be in control, and we, want, and we live for our own glory. And what happens is in the Garden of Eden, we see is this 
relegation of the glory of God removed from the center. And humanity puts themselves, we, me, you, we put ourselves and our glory in God's place. And what happens is horrific. It's truly tragic what happens next. Relationship with God is broken. God is rejected. God is replaced. The very source of all life, shalom at the center, is gone. It's broken. And the one who holds all the parts together in perfect peace is removed. No longer is there shalom. All the parts have now fallen apart. And there's nothing to hold them together. The Jewish rabbis describe it like this. The opposite of peace is pieces. The world is shattered. It's broken into pieces. And no longer is there a prospering rooted in a relationship with God and His glory at the center of all creation. And the outfall is horrific. Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, what do we see? They are banished from the garden. They are alienated from God. They become separated from the source of life because they rejected God. And they replaced God by themselves. And now they get to live for their own glory. And they separated with no access to God. They're in conflict with God, alienated from God. And if you just read Genesis chapter 4 and 5, it gets bad very quickly. There is death. There is murder. There is family conflict. Cain and Abel kill. The world is a mess. And as early as Genesis chapter 5, verse 6, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, this is how God summarizes the world. In three chapters, since he's been removed and replaced with the glory of humanity, this is what God says in three chapters. The Lord saw, this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great God, how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. When you remove the goodness of God, when you remove God out of the center, it's just wickedness. There's no, there's no source of goodness. Gone. And it says, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, that's man, humanity, was only evil all the time. He speaks in absolute terms. Every inclination. Every thought of his heart was only evil all the time. That is fucking hectic. Like, do you see yourself like that? And part of the journey to peace is coming to realize that in the depths of our heart, we are alienated from God. And this is God's assessment. The Lord was grieved and said, I will wipe mankind from the earth. There's a judgment that comes in the rejection of God, in the replacement of God. And the outfall of sin and destruction is God is going to act. And he says, we know the story of the flood. I'm going to wipe this out. The judgment of God is coming. Humanity are no longer friends with God. We are alienated from God. We are enemies of God, standing under his righteous judgment. There it is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God's going to wipe them out. But in this moment of tragedy... In this moment of absolute despair and brokenness and destruction, there is a glimmer of hope that peace can be restored. Peace can be restored. That all is not lost. That we don't have to stand under the righteous judgment of God. That there is peace. Enemies can be reconciled. 
all that is lost can be made new. Because in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, at the end of that terrible assessment, this is how God finishes the statement. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There it is. Join the dots. Favor. Peace on earth. Goodwill to all men. Favor. On whom God's goodwill on whom God's favor rests. But in this, in the ashes of the destruction, of the unraveling of all this perfect peace, God is at work. In the grace of God, we see. In the judgment of God, we see favor. The purest first inklings of the revelation of the Christmas story start to be revealed to us in its earliest Genesis chapter 5 and 6. That God found favor. And, and through Noah, the favor of God, the goodwill of God, the peace of God, and the grace of God is alive. And we see the rest of the, of, of the biblical story that all is not lost. And through Noah and through the prophets, and through the line of David, and all these people, we see the work of God, the wonderful plan of redemption, the wonderful plan of reconciliation, the wonderful work of God to reconcile a world at war with oneself and Him, to bring together back into peace. And we find that fullest revelation in the declaration in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom God's favor rests. There is favor. All is not lost, and the angels declare this wonderful truth for us. There's the context. Out of this unraveling of this brokenness of shalom, out of this lostness that there is no hope for the world, we see God starting. And this moment of declaration of peace on earth makes so much more sense when you realize the reality of the world and who we are in relation to God and what's happened and why they come. Declare God's glory, to restore God's glory, and to bring peace to men on whom God's favor rests. So, what then is this peace? This peace is simply then the restoration of peace between man and God, humanity and God. It's the, it's the reconciliation of me to God, it's the reconciliation of you to God, to be put back in right relationship to God. It's God and sinners who are at war now reconciled. At peace. Hark the herald angels sing. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. Wonderful. God and sinners reconciled. In essence, that could have just been the sermon. God and sinners reconciled. Sing the hymn or the carol. This is what the peace is. This astounding proclamation that I can and that you can and humanity can today who are sinners and enemies of God, opposed to him, might be reconciled to God. We might be brought into his perfect, eternal peace, life-giving peace. And that's the good news of Christmas, this declaration of this reconciliation of peace that you and I can have now on earth. It's not something pie in the sky in the future. It says peace on earth. It's not relative or partial. You can have it now, fully and completely. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through faith in the death of his son. And there it is. We can have peace with God. We can be reconciled to God through faith 
in the Prince of Peace, who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Paul continues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he explains it further. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. You see the past tense? Once, the story of Christmas and Genesis, that we were alienated from God. We were separated from God once. But now, once we were enemies, but he says, but now, what has he done? Verse 21, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, the birth of God in Jesus, through the death to present you what? Holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. We have this peace with God, free from accusation because of the physical coming of God. This is how it's through the reconciliation, through his death, through his physical body, so that he can end the war. He can end, the Bible, the biblical word is enmity. We don't have time to unpack what enmity is, but it says God and man is at enmity with one another. But he comes to bring peace and end the war. And it's beautiful. It's holy. It's without blemish. And it's free from accusation. What is your gift this morning? This is the gift of Christmas. It's absolute and it's pure and it's perfect that you can be declared without blemish, free from accusation. And that's the wonderful thing is once you've been free from accusation, you can't get any freer from accusation. Once you've been declared in God's sight blemishless, you can't become more blemishless. Once God has made you holy, you can't become more holy. Once God has made you perfect, you can't become more perfect. It's absolute. It's on earth. It's now. And it's the gift of Christmas is this free blemishlessness, free of accusation, brought into the very presence of the Creator to experience the fullness of life that He has made us for with the forgiveness of sins at peace with God. It's good news. It means that in this moment we can receive God's peace. And in this moment that you will always be as forgiven, as perfectly loved, and as perfectly accepted by God forever. Nothing can change that. It's not by degree. It's not by relativity. It's not dependent on you. Did you have a good day or a bad day? Are more at peace or less at peace with God? No, you're at peace with God. Through His Son. He has come. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on so to end, how then, how then do you know this peace? How then can you have peace with God? The prerequisite of peace on earth is glory. The prerequisite to peace is glory. See, the angels start with that statement. What do they start with first? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. What was the problem again with Adam and Eve, if you remember? They replaced and they relegated the glory of God. They removed it and placed their glory at the highest point. What happened? Everything falls apart when one becomes its own God. What happened? You become alienated from God. What happened? You become an enemy of God. And our sin begins to destroy everything and it leads us down a path of eternal separation from God when we replace the glory. There is no, there'll never be any eternal peace. There'll never be any world peace until the glory of God is put back in its rightful place. So there can be no peace on earth until everything is centered on God's glory. God is put in the center. The prerequisite of peace on earth is the glory of God. There will be no peace until everything is centered on God's glory. 
Until then, everything, remember what we saw, stands under his judgment. I will wipe them out, he says in Genesis. And he comes to restore his glory. And he comes to establish peace, to put himself back at the center of all of creation, at the center of your life. And this makes sense now when you read the most well-known passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. As I read it again this week, it made more sense to me than ever before. This is what Colossians 1, 17 says. He is before all things. That's Jesus. He is before all things. He's at the center. He's at the highest. And in him, all things are held together. That sounds a bit like shalom, peace. Jesus is at the center of all things, and all things are held together. All things are pulled together in Jesus. He is the center. There can be no peace unless he's at the highest, holding all things together. And it continues in Colossians 1, so that in everything he might have supremacy in my life and over, the, over creation. And through him, it says, to reconcile. There it is again. That therefore, peace only comes when he's at the center with supremacy over all things, reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there it is. You can have peace. And it comes through Jesus. He reconciles you to God. If you would put aside your own glory and have the glory of God put at the center of your life again and know the fullness of life that he brings. Peace only comes through this judgment. It's through his death. And that's what God comes to do. He comes to eradicate. He comes to judge in one sense and remove all the self-centeredness in the world. He comes to remove everything that's not centered on him and to reestablish, he says, a new kingdom of heaven and earth with him at the center. And ultimately, those who reject God get to go live for eternity with themselves at their own center. And that God himself he comes in the flesh as a baby, and it's mercy mild. He lays down his life as our sin offering. He takes our self-centered, rebellious hearts, and he himself gets put to death. He himself becomes alienated. He himself becomes separated from the Father for our sake, taking our judgment so that we might be cleansed of our self-centeredness and be brought into the peace of a God-centeredness in a God-centered world. And that is good news. That there is hope for us today. That this is the gift of Christmas. And it's yours. It's yours through faith in Jesus. It's glory to God in the highest. And it's peace on earth. Goodwill to men on whom God's favor rests. And we can live with celebration today that the favor of God has come in Jesus. And that we could celebrate in this weird and crazy world with an absolute confidence that you can be at peace with God and enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we, we are astounded. You are God and we can have peace with you. We are astounded that you would actually come into this broken world and that you would become our peace offering. That you would die for your enemies to reconcile us that we who rejected you and replaced you, that you would come to eradicate us from our self-centeredness and to draw us back into the center with you. What wonderful news this is. Holy Spirit, we need your grace to enlighten us and awaken our hearts to the good news of Christmas. And it's glory to God in the highest. 
May you be glorified in our lives, in this world. May we see the wonderful presence of God at work in the world. And that we would know the peace of God, reconciled to God, friends of God, sons and daughters of God, living in the permanent, eternal peace and blessing of God. That it would become this transcendent, internal peace that we can have now and fully when you return. That there's a hope, there's a joy that comes, there's a peace that transcends, and we know that we are yours. Amen.